And now, broadcasting from a two-person hot tub, high atop the Butterfield Park water tower, it's the E-Town Lowdown, created by Robbie and Rick. And now, your handsome hosts, PK and Rick. Welcome to another special edition of the E-Town Lowdown COVID-19 pandemic. Today is Thursday, May 28th, 2020. And my guest today is economist Dr. Ibrahim Baranis, assistant professor in the Department of Business and Economics at Elmhurst College. He was with us uh, several weeks ago. How are you today, Avi? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me back. Oh, glad to have you back. So I think maybe from an operational standpoint, institutions of higher learning have just about as much difficulty with this pandemic as any business did. So how did the school year finish up as far as... uh, the classroom, the virtual classroom goes? You know, it was a challenge. We did the best we could. I think myself and a lot of my colleagues, we viewed this a lot as the emergency remote teaching rather than online teaching. And one of the nice things about this summer is we're going to really be taking a lot of time to focus on making resilient classes so that, you know, the plan is to be open in the fall. And if we are, that's great. And if we have to switch back to virtual learning, we'll be ready to do that. Do you think there'll be some students that um, shied away from online learning, virtual learning in the past that might have changed their mind? I hope so. Um, Like I said, we kind of did the best we could. I know that I had always not really been a fan of the online teaching aspect of it, Um, but I am starting to see the benefits of a lot of those tools. And um, I, I know, I think I mentioned last time, I've learned a lot that I'll be applying to my classes that's great. I, I think our, our whole society is going to change and higher education uh, is at the forefront of that, hopefully. So as it relates to the CARES Act, it, it was a big act that encompassed a lot of uh, little individual moving parts, which I'm sure you're way more familiar with than I am. So how do you think that's working so far and what maybe uh, can we learn from what doesn't work in the future? So I think one of the big issues that we had with the CARES Act and really with the COVID-19 crisis in general is that it's exposed a lot of issues, a lot of underlying issues and inequities in our economic structure that it didn't really address. Um, And we we talked about this last time, the pay protection program for example, as part of the CARES Act, which was too small on initial rollout. It was confusing as to how it was done. There were companies that had plenty of reserves and access to credits who were able to uh, get funds from it. Sure. A better option, I think, is instead of something like that, and um, a cheaper option actually would have been some form of payroll insurance. So if the government, for example, had said, you know what, we are going to insure payrolls up to $90,000 or however much, um, that actually would have been cheaper than the Paycheck Protection Program. And, uh, and whatever savings were used from that could have been devoted towards other operating expenses for firms that they were suffering, but paychecks weren't enough of their operating expenses to actually qualify for that kind of program. And just as a quick back of the napkin calculation, I was doing this this morning, um, in 2019, total labor compensation was about $11.4 trillion. So that was over the course of the whole year. Uh, 9.3 from wages, 2.1 trillion from pensions. If you take that and you look at it over the month to month, 
it would have cost $2.85 trillion to cover labor compensation for three months. The CARES Act was $2.2 trillion. And I think, you know, we don't necessarily have to cover the entire thing, but even partially, it would have been a better policy to do some kind of direct payroll insurance. Well, and if you cut out, if you cut out the high-paid employees, that $2.8 trillion might have even been less, right? Exactly. So I, th- I think one of the problems with the CARES Act, and when we talk about the HEROES Act in a little bit, we're seeing the same thing. And this is, I think, the issue with a lot of the price tag on these types of acts is it's not so much about the price tag. It's what we're doing with those funds that I think is the issue. And we could have more efficient ways of using those funds that would have been better for everybody than what was actually done. What have you seen in terms of the stimulus checks that were going directly to taxpayers? Do you, do you think that money's just sitting there or do you think it's being put back in the economy? Yeah, and, I, and this is another big issue I had with the um, CARES Act is those one-time stimulus payments, we know generally that they don't work. Um, and for a very simple kind of psychological reason, if the world is incredibly uncertain, which it is, and if I don't know what next week or next month holds and somebody gives me a $1,200 check, I'm just going to sit on it. I'm going to hoard it and I'm going to wait until I really, really need it. Um, recurring payments, I think Gregory Mankiw a couple weeks ago said, you know, a better policy would have been the $2,000 payment and then $1,000 recurring payments. Those are more likely to get people to spend because that's certainty. I know that I've got this source of income coming, so I'm feeling comfortable in spending it. Um, A one-time payment, most people are going to hoard that. They're just going to sit on it rather than actually spend it. And the big problem right now is we need people spending. We need to kind of support consumer spending. And last I saw, I think it was down about 8%, which is given how much of uh, consumption spending is part of our gross domestic product, that is a massive decline. That is a really, 8% doesn't sound a lot, but given right. the size of the economy and the size of consumption, that is incredibly. As, as a banker, I can tell you deposits are way up and it appears that folks are just squirreling away their money, so to speak, and not really spending it. So I, uh, I concur with your analysis of what's actually happening. As it relates to, we mentioned the HEROES Act, and that's being debated in Congress right now. Can you kind of give us some highlights of that and what you like and might maybe don't like about that? Yeah, so a big part of the act is a second round of stimulus, and that is better than nothing. I know I just spent a long time discussing the issues with it, but if the option is stimulus or nothing, I think stimulus is probably the right call. I would have liked to see it more as a recurring type of payment, um, but that was not. That seemed to be shut down pretty quickly. A couple things, though, that really have me confused. I'm not sure why they're issuing the automatic stabilizers. One of the most important features of the government budget in general is its non-discretionary automatic stabilizing policy. Um, And just for your listeners, an automatic stabilizer is something that's going to kick in when growth goes above or below a certain limit. Um, So unemployment insurance, for example, is a standard automatic stabilizer. More people are unemployed, more people collect unemployment insurance, so spending on that increases. 
then when unemployment falls, fewer people collect unemployment insurance, so spending on that decreases. There's no additional policy needed from the government. This is something that kicks in automatically. Tax revenue is another very common uh, automatic stabilizer. When unemployment is low, tax revenues naturally fall as fewer people have jobs. Oh, sorry. Uh, tax revenues are naturally high as more people have jobs and more people are paying taxes and vice versa. When unemployment is high, tax revenues fall because fewer people have jobs. The HEROES Act doesn't really have these. Um, and I think as any kind of economics 101 student could tell you, or at least my students could tell you, those automatic stabilizers are really important, well, stabilizing policy. The point of government policy isn't to grow as fast as possible, it's to smooth the trends in the business cycle. Um, and not using automatic stabilizers, even if the HEROES Act passes, really just means that we're going to have another kind of debate over this in a few months. In either of these acts, the CARES Act or the HEROES Act, are there any provisions for uh, large incentives for large corporations? So in the CARES Act, um, and I don't know if this is exactly the question you're asking, but it is something I want to bring up. There was a $135 billion provision um, where business owners could use losses from their business to cancel out non-business income on their taxes. Um, now, these losses didn't have to be related to the pandemic. They could have been accrued in 2018 or 2019, but those uh, losses could be applied to this program. Um, there were no strings attached to these funds and it's only available to individuals with either $250,000 in non-business income or more, or couples with $500,000 in non-business income or more, uh, which I think what I saw is about 43,000 people. Now, this is a $135 billion provision. That is triple what was provided for food and housing aid in the CARES Act which was $42 billion, and it's more than what was spent on public health services, which was $100 billion in the end. And I'm guessing it went largely unnoticed, except for folks like you that really did your homework. Yeah. And I mean, and again, this kind of goes back to what are we actually spending funds on? Are we actually devoting rescue in the proper way? Um, and I think when you have provisions like this in the bill, it's really a poor way to do it. I would say there, there's better uses for those funds. So shooting from the hip, like I tend to do, um, I think there are some sectors that are doing really well. And, and one I might say that I've heard about a lot is liquor, uh, alcohol sales. And I'm, I'm sure there's other sectors that are doing quite well during this. Is there going to be um, almost the opposite of pent up demand at the end of this pandemic where those sectors are going to go more than back to normal and might be hurt for a little bit? I think so. And I think some of my colleagues in, the, in supply chain management would be able to tell you a little bit more. Um, I, I think my colleague, Gary Wilson, he calls this the bullwhip effect, where you have kind of this immediate shortage as people rush out to buy. I, I've been doing a lot of baking lately, as I think a lot of people have. Uh, flour and yeast is impossible to find anywhere. But once those shortages are done, once those firms have really picked up production, we're going to see kind of maybe it smooth out a bit. 
But once things get back to normal and consumption patterns kind of return to what they were pre-crisis, we might see a lot of those industries that where there was a ton of demand right at the start of the crisis. Um, so they ramped up production in order to meet that extreme demand. They're going to find themselves with a lot of surplus uh, output. And and as it relates to food, we've we've seen that demand up a little bit and the production up a little bit, but other than meat. So are you seeing other sectors where they're not able to to produce at levels that are normal other than meat? Um, I'm not sure. I think the meat industry is a little different. That has more to do with the safety regulations in place and whether it's actually safe to be in these meat processing plants or not. And I think that's having a bit a bigger effect on meat shortages um, than anything else, really. So back to my question about sectors doing well and what's going to happen after this whole pandemic, the opposite side, sectors that aren't doing so well, are a lot of those going to have some pent up demand that where they might be able to bounce back a little bit quicker than we think? I think the restaurant industry is going to be the one to really watch. Um, more so, I think, than, say, travel or tourism or hospitality, because I think people are going to be hesitant to travel, um, but they're not going to be as hesitant to, say, go to their favorite restaurant. Um, and I think we're already starting to see that. As states begin to reopen, we're seeing restaurants have very long waiting lists. We're seeing bars get very crowded. Um, whether or not that can be maintained, and in the instance of a second wave, whether or not that's going to potentially be problematic is something to keep an eye out. I think restaurants actually might do better uh, than expected, at least in the short term, as everybody's kind of sick of cooking and everybody just wants to go out. Um, I think manufacturing is actually going to do very well. And I think when you look at global trade patterns, we're going to really see kind of a shift. I think we're going to start to see a lot more domestic manufacturing as well. And we're going to start to kind of see a resurgence in that. How about in particular the auto industry? Do you have any thoughts as it relates to what's been going on there? So this is interesting and it relates to, and I think we had some technical issues last time with oil, with oil prices as low as they are and with gas prices as low as they are, I think we might see the auto industry pick up a bit. Uh, I think we might see production in automobiles rise simply because the associated costs with driving are now much less. We kind of saw this in um, 2007, uh, where oil prices were extremely high leading up to the Great Recession. But once they fell after the, uh, during the recession, people started driving more. People started buying the cars they wanted more. Um, and I think we might see a similar kind of pattern. Um, I think the durable goods industries, any kind of tech work that can be done from home is still going to be done from home. Those are the kinds of industries I think are going to do well coming out of this crisis. So you mentioned oil. Oil is, is king in a lot of people's minds. Um, yeah. Can you explain exactly what we heard um, back a couple months ago about people paying you to take oil off their hands and explain that whole phenomenon and where you see oil going in the short term and the long term? It's, it was such an interesting phenomena. And it's something that I didn't think I'd ever see. Because, you know, in economics, we usually talk about prices as having a zero bound. They can't go below zero because who's going to pay for something that's worth less? Um, oil, what happened was due to over 
don't necessarily want to say overproduction, but due to an abundance of oil and nowhere to store it, people who owned oil had to pay to store it. And what they found was that if they could pay somebody to take the oil off their hands, it would be cheaper than continuing to pay to store the oil. So that's, it's an interesting, uh, and I'm actually going to use it when I teach principles in the fall. Um, it's an interesting way to understand opportunity costs, where paying to get rid of the oil is cheaper than holding it and continuing to store it. Um, so that was why we saw oil prices dip negative, is that there was so much of it available, there was nobody looking to buy it, and people were just paying because they didn't want to have to pay the continual costs of storing it. Going forward, I think parts, uh, I think there have been subsidies to the industry to kind of reverse the negative price trend. I'm not sure on the size of those off the top of my head. Um, it will be interesting as things begin to pick up whether oil prices recover. I don't think they're going to come back to their pre-crisis level, at least not without additional subsidies from the government. But I'm also not so sure that it would be a good thing for them to return to their pre-crisis level. I think um, now is really, it, it's, a very it's a very weird thing where we look at low oil prices and the initial response is, oh, that's a problem. But for most of us who use oil in our businesses, who use oil in our cars, low oil prices is very good. It's a lower cost of production. It allows us to produce more and it allows us to sell more. Um, so for those of us who use oil, who need to buy it, those low prices are good. For those of us who own it, that low, low oil prices aren't so good. Last time we talked, uh, we talked a little bit about how there might be permanent changes in the way we do business, at least certain sectors. And a, an offshoot of that is, so let's just say that certain businesses do have more people working from home than they did pre-pandemic. Might that affect the commercial real estate market? That is an interesting question. I haven't thought of it too much. My, my initial response is, I think it very well could. Um, I'd have to look more into that. It's, uh, it's certainly something that we in the banking industry think about a little bit. And uh, uh, we, we just recently built a co-working space in our building. And uh, we don't know what people will think about coming back to a co-working space after the pandemic. So all of those space considerations are, uh, are very interesting in my world. So um, I've talked to a couple of restaurateurs in particular that have said, they're keeping their staffs full or close to full because of the ability to get PPP funds for that eight week period. But at the end of that eight week period, they're not sure if business isn't back that they're going to be able to keep those people. So do you think there might be another bump in unemployment at the end of that eight to 10 week period? Yeah. And this kind of goes back, I think, to what we were talking about earlier, the whole point of the PPP was to do exactly that so that people could maintain their jobs and continue to receive funds. Once the funds dry up, the question then becomes, what do we do going forward? And this, again, is where the lack of automatic stabilizers, I think, is just kind of mind boggling in either the CARES Act or the HEROES Act, because this is where those automatic stabilizers can step in and say, okay, we can pick up the slack here. We can automatically adjust and automatically extend those kinds of programs. And again, this 
going back to what we talked about earlier, the uh, payroll insurance, I think would have been an important plan to have. And again, making sure that the other expenses are met because for a lot of businesses, you know, payroll is an important part, but it's not the only expense that these businesses have. Sure. Um, and for smaller businesses, payroll might not even be the, ma the major part of their, uh, of their expenses. Right. Um, so adjusting the act to make sure that workers can still receive payment while businesses are still able to meet those other operating expenses, that I think is going to be an important part of policy going forward. As it relates to unemployment, obviously, you know, I, I just got another alert on my phone that uh, unemployment's up again, of course. Are there any trends, you know, locally in the Chicago area that are different than the national trend as it relates to pandemic unemployment? And do you think that there are likely to be extensions in uh, unemployment payments beyond like, for instance, the federal four month? Yeah, I think there will be. And I think there almost will have to be. I do think part of what is pushing to reopen is an unwillingness of policymakers to make those extensions. I think they would rather push to reopen, remove those shelter in place rules so that people who maybe don't feel safe returning to work, the claim could be, well, you are voluntarily unemployed and we're not going to be making unemployment payments. Um, that's, I think, more the cynic in me than anything mm -hmm. else saying that. So, so I think that's what is motivating it. And it's a real problem because unemployment insurance has actually been shown to be a good policy, um, at least in terms of again, stabilizing the economy. Some analysis by Moody's done in 2008, I don't know if it's been updated, show that for every dollar spent on unemployment, we saw GDP grow about $1.60. So that's one of those things that we actually get a lot out of those unemployment spendings. Of course, it is costly and there is the moral implication of do we want to pay people to not work? I think given the nature of this crisis and given the, un the potential unsafe return to work, that might be one of those things where we can say, okay, let's ignore those potential moral issues because it would be more immoral, I think, to force people to return to unsafe work environments. The last time we, um, we were together, I asked you about local taxing bodies and the effect of the pandemic and the, you know, the business shutdowns on their revenue. Do you have anything new on that horizon that you've, you've read or uh, looked yeah. at, you know, analyzed? I think Governor Pritzker in his most re recent budget proposed a tax increase, bringing corporate taxes to about 12%. I'm not entirely sure. I have to double check those numbers. That's, that is not a good idea. And I think part of the HEROES Act should be uh, funds for states and funds for localities to help them out of their budget crises. Otherwise, they're going to have to either raise taxes or cut spending, both of which would be horrific for the state and local economies, um, either in the form of people leaving, businesses leaving, in the form of, I mean, in the form of budget cuts, which would lead to higher levels of unemployment in our state and in our localities than we're currently seeing. In recessions, in depressions, and in really unprecedented times like this one, we do need kind of unprecedented measures to make up for it. Uh, the federal government, as part of its acts, rather than some of these 
other provisions, devote those funds to helping states and to helping localities with their budgetary crisis. Um, it's something that probably should have been done in the 2008 crisis that wasn't, um, and it's something that should be done now. And I unfortunately don't think it is, but it should be. You know, a lot of Americans, they see big numbers when they see tax numbers and federal government revenue and this and that. And whether it's 300 million, 300 billion or 3 trillion, it's all the same to us. It's a big number, right? And hey, it's a big country. We've got all this money. But when you look at the dollars that are being um, given out or pumped into the economy, all important investments, I might add, but they're real money. Um, I, I looked up last year, 2019 total revenue of the federal government was somewhere around $3.5 trillion. And if you take the CARES Act and the HEROES Act and add them together, they're way north of that $3.5 trillion. I mean, this, this is real money. And I always think of money as representing some goods or services, work that's been performed. And if you just print money and throw it into the economy, in my mind, it creates inflation and it makes each dollar worth that much less. So just wonder what your take is on that. Yeah. So the inflation question is an important one. And I think it's something that if you turn on the news, if you listen to what analysts are saying, they're all very concerned about inflation. My question, and the reason why I'm actually probably a little less concerned than they are, is what is the mechanism by which inflation is going to then occur? Um, so we, we print money, we, it, we, it goes into the economy, and then what? The, there, that step A is an increase in the money supply. Step C is inflation. But what is step B? And if step B then doesn't occur, does that mean that we don't get to step C? So to put another way, the two general causes of inflation, we can either have cost push or demand pull generally. Cost push where costs of production skyrocket, wages rise, oil prices rise, and that pushes up prices because firms then have to recover those costs. As we just talked about, oil prices are extremely low, wages are falling. I'm not generally too concerned about the cost push inflation. Where I would be concerned is the demand pull inflation. People find they have more money in their pockets. They consider this to be a real increase in their income rather than a nominal increase. So they go out and they spend more. Um, and that increase in demand just then pushes up prices. Now, for that to occur, we generally have to be up against productive capacity, meaning we're at full employment. We are producing what is right to do so, we're producing the quote unquote right amount, the optimal amount, and then we start to spend beyond that capacity to produce. Um, firms can't then hire more workers. We have a, what we might call a tight labor market. So wages start to rise, that pushes up prices, and you wind up in that kind of wage price spiral, which, could which would then generate inflation. So if that is step B, production is up against capacity and we're still spending, then yes, we might be worried about inflation. With unemployment at 14.7%, with consumer spending plummeting, I think to be concerned about inflation right now might be putting the cart in front of the horse. That's why I'm not an economist, by the way. <laughs> That's why I'm asking you yeah. these questions. Yeah, but, I, but this is the kind of thing. I actually had this conversation um, with some friends over the weekend because they, they're concerned about inflation as well. 
um, because that is what you see on the news. Um, I think unemployment right now is a much bigger issue. And I think if we were to start cutting spending before unemployment, you know, at least get it into single digits before we start worrying about that. If all you're seeing is concerns about inflation, you'll probably be concerned about inflation. I am less concerned just because I think the mechanisms by which that inflation is going to occur aren't quite there. Well, good. My blood pressure just went down. Thank you. <laughs> I have an interview every week with uh, a lady who is the president and CEO of our local hospital, Elmhurst Memorial Hospital. And I, I know from those interviews that hospitals are struggling financially right now, kind of for two reasons, One, all related to the pandemic, but the COVID patients' uh, reimbursements from insurance are not sufficient to pay for the level of care that those folks have. One and two, people that are relatively healthy but have some issues they really should be going in for aren't. So the hospitals actually, even with all these COVID patients, are still relatively empty. So I wonder what the future looks like for healthcare and our insurance and, and all of the above. So going back to what I said kind of at the beginning, when we talk about COVID 19, we can talk about it in the context of it being a crisis itself, and then it also exposing certain crises or certain problematic underpinnings that have always kind of been there, but we never really saw it until COVID-19 kind of stripped away the cover. And I think in the healthcare industry, we, th those issues are now being really exposed. I'd hope that there's kind of a complete overhaul of the American healthcare industry. You know, we have the highest healthcare costs in the world with some of the worst health outcomes, or at least we don't have good enough health outcomes to warrant the high price tag uh, for our healthcare costs. Um, some type of public option would probably be nice to move to. And when we talk about people not going to the hospital who really should, part of it might be, you know, they're worried about COVID-19. And the other part is if I get sick and I have to miss work. How am I going to actually be able to afford these kinds of, uh, you know, these kinds of treatments? And that just, so you push off the doctor visit, you push off going to the hospital. And then when you really have to go to the hospital, you can't wait anymore. You have that much more of a price tag. Um, and it's almost one of those situations where it reinforces certain inequities in that people who have the resources, people who have incomes to get things treated immediately, don't then face the much larger price tag later on. But the people who might not be able to afford it, they put off the doctor visit, they don't go, and then they're faced with a much larger price tag later. So an overhaul to get people to go to the doctor regularly to actually uh, to make those kinds of visits affordable that's going to be necessary. And that's true, not just with COVID-19, but I think that's true just in general. And I think we'll see a lot, I think we'll see healthcare costs fall, even if it's a higher price tag up front. I think the long-term savings from not having to treat these major issues is going to be cheaper. One last thing I want to ask you about, and it's a follow-up to last time, what do you see on the world economy stage right now that either worries you or, or makes you think that there's going to be a big change in the way the world economy functions? I think we are going to see um, 
may, I, I don't want to say a move backwards because time only moves in one direction, but I think we're going to see less globalization than we've seen in the past. I'm not saying nothing, but I think we are going to see a kind of a restructuring of trade patterns. Um, I think especially just given the safety concerns, given the health concerns, um, I think we're going to see less tourism, less international tourism, especially. Um, again, that's mainly due to safety concerns. I don't know how many people want to travel into other countries right now, even once they open the borders. Um, and that is going to be an issue uh, just in terms of global connections. Um, but also given the safety concerns of reopening borders and people traveling across Orders maybe returning home when they were abroad for a while. Are they bringing the virus back? Are they spreading the virus? That's how it got to the U.S. in the first place was international travel. In general, and this might be getting a little bit from your question, so I hope that's okay. The the push is with the push to reopen the economy and the push to reopen anything. I, I think we need to move away from this view that the economy is a machine. And what we did was turn it off, and now we just need to kind of turn it back on again. Um, I, I generally like to think the economy of more as an ecosystem, where we have all these parts that work together. And if one part suffers, that has feedback into the other parts, and it can cause those other parts to suffer as well. Um, this is more than simply replacing a broken part in a machine. This is more of nurturing a part of our economic ecosystem that has been suffering and whose suffering has led to other parts suffering. Um, it was in economic methodology, there has been this push to kind of separate the economy from society. And the economy is kind of seen as this separate entity that can be understood separate from the people that actually make it up. I think that is a huge mistake. Uh, we, we need to understand the way in which we as a society build our economy and the way in which the economy then influences society. And we can't treat them as distinct entities. Dr. Avi yeah. Baranis, Assistant Professor in the Department of Business and Economics at Elmhurst College. I hope you'll join us again before this is all over because I have a feeling this pandemic's going to going to affect our lives for uh, quite a few months to come. So thanks so much for being our guest again today, Avi. You're very welcome. And anytime you want to have me on, I'm happy to do it. Thank you. Now more than ever, we're asking the community of Elmhurst to please fill out your U.S. 2020 census. It's quick, safe, and easy, and you can do it online at my2020census.gov. Thank you. Hello, Pete Kruger here from the Elmhurst Independent Newspaper. When I want a good laugh, I listen to E-Town Lowdown, even though Rick, Robbie, and PK podcast from a hot tub, they're three cool dudes. And now, it's time for another installment of One Ponce a Time, with Lowdown legend PK and his overly enthused yesteryear expert friend, Elmhurst History Museum director, Dave Oberg. Hey, boys and girls, did you know that one ponce a time, Elmhurst was home to a legendary NASCAR driver? In the 1960s, local boy Fred Lorenzen arrived on the scene to become the first Northerner to become a NASCAR champion. With his movie star looks, cool professional demeanor, and skill on the track, 
Lorenzen blazed like a comet in the racing world. Known to his fans as Fearless Freddy, the Golden Boy, and the Elmhurst Express, Lorenzen collected 26 checkered flags in his storied career. All right, so let's dig a little deeper. Um, even as a boy, Fred Lorenzen dreamed of auto racing. His go-kart racing was the terror of the neighborhood until local police actually seized it. On warm summer days as a young man, he would listen to NASCAR races on the radio from a tent in the family yard. And by the time he was 18, he had already begun auto racing on dirt tracks and also dabbled a little bit in drag racing as well. In 1958, 1959, he posted back-to-back -back wins in the United States Auto Club Stock Car Division Championships. Uh, Lorenzen had tried to break into the NASCAR circuit as an independent driver, but it proved too expensive. But Lorenzen's blazing speed and style had caught the eye of Ralph Moody of the famed Holman Moody Ford Racing Group. Moody called Lorenzen on Christmas Eve of 1960 to offer him the ultimate gift, a chance to drive for Holman Moody Ford in the 1961 NASCAR season. Lorenzen did not disappoint. In the 61 season, his daring high-low maneuver on turn two of the Darlington race rocketed him past Curtis Turner on final lap to victory. The gutsy move earned him the nickname Fearless Freddy. Humble and hardworking, Lorenzen would arrive at 7 a.m. at the race shop and work side-by-side -side with his crew on the engine. Working on the car, he maintained, got him closer to the vehicle and gave him an edge. He was known to write the word think and post it on the dash as a reminder to constantly scan the horizon for opportunity when racing. Now, Lorenzen's good looks, nice manners, and regard for the fans helped his northerner break into a southern sport of NASCAR and earned him another nickname, the Golden Boy. By 1963, the Golden Boy proved he had the Midas touch. With six wins, 21 top five finishes, and 25 top 10 finishes, he became the first NASCAR driver to earn $100,000 in a single season, about the equivalent of $850,000 today. He would prove to be the only NASCAR driver to win 20 races in his first 100 starts. In the 65 season, his number 28 Lafayette Ford cruised to victory at the Daytona 500 and the Atlanta 600. He would win the Atlanta 600 three years in a row, a first in NASCAR history. Over time, life on the road wore on Lorenzen, though. He retired from NASCAR in 1967, returning briefly to the sport in 1970. With his good looks and charm, he tried his hand in Hollywood with parts in three racing-themed movies. Eventually, he'd turn that charm into another successful career in real estate. But the passion for racing never left him, and NASCAR never forgot the Elmhurst Express. In 1998, Fred Lorenzen was named one of NASCAR's top 50 drivers. He was inducted into the NASCAR Hall of Fame in 2015. Racer Darrell Waltrip described him as the Jeff Gordon of his day. Winston Kelly, the executive director of the NASCAR Hall of Fame, noted he excelled on big tracks and big races. Now, if you'd like to learn a little more about Fred Lorenzen, you can visit us at the Elmhurst History Museum. Our exhibit, by all accounts, um, has a section on the Elmhurst Express, including photographs, stories, film footage, even one of his trophies. And the museum gift shop has a limited number of autographed posters if you'd like to honor our local racing legend. Wow, Dave. That's really cool. You know, he lived a couple blocks away from me when I was growing up, and I used to walk by his house almost every day on the way to school. And I remember thinking it was really cool. Matter of fact, he inspired me so much, I set up a separate bank account to go to racing school someday. I ended up using that to go to college, but so be it. It's pretty exciting to have him from our town. Thanks a lot, I think Dave. so, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, me racing's in your future. <laughs> <laughs> Better hurry up. The E-Town Lowdown, brought to you by the wonderful folks at 
the Elmhurst Armpit Orchestra featuring the biggest bass drum in the world at nine feet in diameter. Yes, you heard that right, nine feet in diameter. This has been a special presentation of the E-Town Lowdown.